So let's start with the basics. I'm going to bring up a video. The Walmart of C, uh, excuse me, the Walmart CEO uh, got brought on a news interview. And what he had to say about deflation, I think, is important to note. And I think we'll really segue how we're going into today's uh, webinar and podcast. So let me bring this up really quickly. And I'm going to share with you guys uh, his thoughts and his kind of perception into next year as a retailer of pretty much all major products that we buy here in this country. So let me find how to share this and then we'll get this up. All right, we'll share sound. Here we go. All right, so here he is. Uh, this is about three minutes long, and then I'll make some commentary afterwards. But uh, just pay attention because this is a very short clip, and there's a lot of little nuggets uh, in this interview. Yesterday afternoon, I sat down with Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, in a Teterboro revamped Walmart Super Center to talk to him about his game plan for the holiday shopping season and what the heck is going on with the consumer. Listen. We're an omni retailer, so we've got things going on e-commerce-wise, stores-wise, marketing-wise, and we just had a chance to walk around and show you a little bit about what's happening with our remodels here. We've got quite a few stores that have been refreshed, and that's exciting as we head into this Christmas season. How is it going so far? How is the, the Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Thanksgiving period? Yeah, we released our third quarter results early in November, and we talked about the fact that we saw some softness at the end of October, but that November had started off well. Um, what we said at that time is that we expect that Black Friday will go well and that things may be a little soft until you get closer to Christmas because customers, generally speaking, are really price sensitive right now. They're prioritizing their orders and, and they know that there's a chance that the prices might be lower right before Christmas or right after Christmas with clearance. And so that's that's what we expect to happen. What are you seeing in terms of traffic around this important holiday period? Yeah, we're continuing to see traffic growth in store, plus even more transaction growth for pickup, curbside, and delivery. Um, as a company, our in-store business is continuing to grow, but we expect that this trend of faster growth for curbside and delivery will continue. And we're happy to serve people however they want to be served. Um, customers these days shop in kind of an all-the-above way. They use stores, they use pickup, they use delivery. It's fun to come in here and pick, pick up what you needed for Thanksgiving and also look at what was available for Black Friday, and that's the behavior we're seeing. What about by income level? Because it does feel like it's been bifurcated. Everybody's price sensitive. You know, we went through this period of inflation, which has now changed. We're starting to see some deflation, which we're happy to see. But as that price sensitivity went up, everybody was looking for value, and we did really well and continue to with higher income cohorts. Higher income trading down. Is that still happening? We don't like to think of it as trading down to come shop at Walmart. It would be more like people are looking for value. But as we've shown you, like in our apparel category, we've got better brands. We've got some great values, even though they're at higher price points than what we might have had in the past. So Walmart has appealed to everybody for some categories forever. Like we sell a lot of bicycles and flat panel televisions. But these days we're focused on offering customers what they want in apparel and home and some other categories that have more 
more of a fashion component so that we can serve everybody better. And then bring along services like Walmart Plus so that you can get free delivery and, and hopefully retain those customers that have been coming to us in recent times. You mentioned some of the, the general merchandise categories, which have been weaker compared to staples like food. Is that reversing? Um, not in dollars, but in units, we're seeing GM start to come back. And um, we've done well in GM through the year, like back to school was pretty good. Um, things were better in the second quarter than the first quarter. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens in the general merchandise categories in the year ahead because prices are so much lower. Um, we're down in pricing in the general merchandise categories, meaning non-food categories, by about 5% now. And we're seeing the food categories basically be about where they were a year ago. So today, if you're a customer shopping our app or walking through the store, you see a lot of rollbacks, prices that were lower than before. Our toy department's got 25 items below $25, and there are items that are easy to find there but under you 10 do bucks. Last year. Couldn't do as many of those items last year. So you know, Hot Wheels are still sales? selling at a buck 18. Yeah. You know, Barbie's hot, but under $25 is an important price. All right. So you can clearly see that uh, there's some concern in the GM market, meaning like general merchandise market. And Walmart, it's interesting, Walmart has a, a really unique perspective on what's happening in uh, products, especially GM products, general uh, general merchandise products, because when people are looking for value, they go to Walmart, they go to, you know, these they're not going to the Target. They're not going to your uh, your general retail stores or your malls to buy products. So when people's wallets get tighter, they typically look for more value. And so Walmart isn't necessarily hurting that way from a revenue standpoint. However, from a pricing standpoint in the store, they are seeing already massive deflation in all categories. He mentioned food. Food is back down to prices about a year ago. He's saying that general merchandise is also dropped in price. Uh, and we're also seeing things like uh, certain behaviors online and in store from Black Friday that are starting to show that people are holding back. The general consumers going, you know, I, I, I'm a little more skeptical. I'm, I'm looking for more value rather than paying full ticket price. And that's generally the trend that even the CEO of Walmart is seeing. And so with that, I think it's valuable that we transition into like, what is, what's causing this? Like, how is this happening? And I want to bring up, let me show you guys this. I'm going to show you the money supply versus inflation chart. And I think this is a valuable chart to kind of glean into. Let's see, I've got so many charts today. I think this is it. Let me see really quick. Yeah, this is it. So money supply versus inflation. And this Oh, man, this is a scary chart to look at. And the reason I bring this up is we have not seen this type of drop in money supply and inflation percentage year over year since the Great Depression. Um, and we have not dropped below zero. So you can see that we've come all the way down from 19% increase in money supply, right? That was when we were just printing all this money, trying to stimulate the economy through the pandemic. And now with the money supply uh, being constricted and lending being constricted, we're seeing less cash going out into the market uh, because the feds are they're literally shredding cash. Uh, and what's happening as a result 
is year over year, we saw a negative 3.4% in money supply change, which is, we, we just haven't seen that since the Great Depression. We have not dropped into, you can see clear back into 1930, was the one time that we actually had a negative change this extreme. And what followed was the Great Depression. So I'm not saying we have a Great Depression coming. We're, uh, we have tools and the feds have tools uh, that they didn't have clearly back in the 30s. They're much more sensitive to data. They're reacting, I would say, even better than they did in the 80s around some of the inflation issues that we had then. However, this this is uncharted territory. And what we're seeing here uh, with money supply versus inflation is that both are coming down. Uh, but the last time we saw money supply come down to this level was and resulted in a pretty scary future for the next, uh, it was like a three to five year period. So are we heading into a depression based on money supply? I would say no, but this is a really strong argument that we are going into a deflationary period. And 2024, my prediction based on a lot of this data is 2024 is going to feel a lot better for the average consumer. Now, with that, with deflation and with the feds targeting unemployment as one of the key metrics before we start lowering rates, I also anticipate that, yes, this will be good for the consumer, but some of the consumers are going to be losing their jobs while this happens. So as long as you can keep your job, keep your income stable, this should be actually a benefit to you and or your family. Now, moving into our... our uh, Real Estate Friday forecast portion, I want to start with rents. Rents, oh, this is actually an article. So let me bring this up. There was a rent report that came out that just the data on here was just incredible. And I want to bring out some highlights on this report. So let me bring this up really quick. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this um, section, but I think it's valuable to share see if I can get this pulled up. Why isn't this not, why is this not showing? Sorry, give me a second, guys. Nope, don't do that. Okay. There we go. I got so many things up on my uh, computer screen. It's hard to navigate what I've got up and not. So this is on apartmentlist.com. And all I want to show and share with you is how things have been changing um, across the rental market. Because if you don't recall, about three months ago, I showed you a chart between the disparity between rent increases and mortgage increase. And there, there's this massive gap. And a lot of it had to do with interest rates. And so we talked about like one of two things has to happen. We either have to have both come down or there has to be a massive increase in one or the other. And one of them was that prices of real estate would have to catch up with the massive swing in rental costs. And so you can see this is a chart that uh, goes over the United States median rent from 2017 to present. And you can see that massive spike. And this spike was actually in a percentage uh, from a percentage basis, larger than increase in the price of homes. And so we've never seen that disparity before, but it always corrects because of rates. When people are buying homes, uh, building, 
to rent, they they have to price in and factor in like what's the cost to service, right? What how much is based on rates do I have to charge to make this project even feasible? And so that gap will eventually close and get pretty consistent to where it was before. But in order for that to happen, and you can see the trend, rents are probably going to have to drop. And I'm going to make the argument today that if you are renting apartment or and or home, rents across the country are going to have to drop. I, I just can't conceive a other scenario, another possibility where that just wouldn't be the case. And so let me show you some other data on this. This is month over month change in national rent index. And you can see that we are like almost at an all time low where it goes clear back to the pandemic, meaning we are seeing the change in national rent, like the actual uh, change that's happened percentage wise month over month at almost an all time low from what is that November of 2022. So uh, what else did I want to show you guys on this? Year over year, change in national rent index. We're kind of back to the 2018 uh, time on this, so I'm not really interested in that. Oh, here we go. Annual change in median rent. So this is from 2018 to present. This graph is very unique. You have to look at the right side where it shows the dates. Uh, 2021, here's 2022, and then 2023 is this purple line here. And you can see the radical percentage increase that happened in 21. But look at 2023, very different than 2018, 2019, 2020. We kind of destabilized. We saw this drop. And uh, 2022. Now, 2023, we had almost no increase. Almost, uh, you could see at the very, like the highest spike year over year, we're probably at like two and a half percent increase, which would be, that would that would follow our typical and what we would tolerate with inflation, but then it started dropping, and dropping pretty hard all the way into November, and we'll see what happens in December. We might get a negative, and if I were to predict into December and January, I would bet that this goes into the negative, meaning we see a negative percentage growth in median rents across the nation, which is, frankly, is good for the average consumer. It's good. Uh, for the person who's trying to to make the most out of their income, uh, especially with affordability issues being where they're at right now. Uh, rent CPI is gradually receding also. So you can see in 2023, we had this massive spike, obviously, through COVID, and then this drop uh, that happened through um, this season and heading into November. We're kind of, you're seeing that we're starting to flatten off, but the, that data has gone all the way down to when the pandemic hit. So this is apartments listed nationally uh, across the country. And what's the percentage change? And we've had virtually, we've had negative. So we've, we're actually in and sitting in the negative in terms of apartment listed. Uh, and so that's not, when you have supply and demand issues, that's not, a, that's not great for the renter to have less available than uh, previously before. Let's see if there was anything else on here I wanted to show you guys. I think that grabs it. Here are the slowest metro level rent growths across the country, uh, ranked one through 10. And so if you're in Austin, Orlando, Atlanta, basically any of these uh, cities, this is the worst. Like this, this is the worst over six months. This is the worst over 12 months. This is the worst over three years. And so uh, but we're, we're clearly seeing rent growth over their three-year period. 
But when you start to get into your 12-month and six-month periods, you're starting to see negative rent growth, which means prices are dropping for rents across the country, specifically in these areas, uh, Texas being the leading. Uh, San Francisco, not so great. Over six months, negative 3%. San Antonio, obviously. And then our hometown here in Salt Lake, we are actually seeing rent decreases here in our hometown, Salt Lake, by negative 3% year over year. So I'm going to jump off of this because I want to get into more of the uh, home side of things because that's a, a leading indicator typically on how the economy is doing and where we're going to be into next year. And what I want to bring up to kind of segue this transition is our data on lumber. Now, lumber is a key element, a key um, input for new construction and also improvement, but mostly new construction. And you'll be able to see in this chart, this is the lumber prices over uh, basically the last five years. So you can see this went back probably into like 2019. And you can kind of see the old trend line where we were sitting at about $400 a thousand board feet. And in 2022, 2021, and you guys know this if you're building or buying, it was it was ridiculous. Lumber prices almost tripled at one point from 500 to 1500. But you can clearly see in 2023, we have finally stabilized. We actually dropped and hit an all-time low, which was like the 400 level. And now we are stabilizing. And you'll see with some of this other data points that I'm going to bring out, like new home sales and new home buyer traffic, why lumber prices will probably continue to drop, which will be another deflationary uh, input which should be good, again, for the consumer. We should start to see prices drop across the board uh, in the home sector, but also in your just common goods, any asset class. Now, obviously, that's not going to include gold. When you go into recessions, typically precious metals like to go up. Um, but aside from those asset classes, you're going to see most assets start to drop. So here's the lumber piece. I'm going to segue over to new home sales versus traffic. Let's see if I can find that one. This is a fascinating chart. And the reason I bring you guys this data is I could just talk about this. You know, we could talk about this all day. But when you see visually what's actually happened, it tells a much bigger story. And this is new home sales versus buyer traffic. So if you're a builder, whether it's spec homes, like brand new, we're talking from foundation up. If you are a major builder in your city or metropolitan area, this data matters. And I'm actually shocked at how many builders and their executives do not track this data. They don't watch it. And it's like it's like having no compass in the storm. You know, it, it blows my mind. But regardless, uh, hopefully if you're if you're going to be buying new or used or you're thinking about, you know, selling your house, you know, this data will definitely put you in a good position to decide is now a good time is there a better way to do it because frankly the data it tells the story and i would say 90 percent of buyer sellers including builders do not understand this data so here is the sales blue is the sales and orange is the buyer traffic and you can see that if you go clear back to the pandemic when Everything was crashing. There was no appetite for buying. People were stuffing money under the couch. They were getting ready for the, the storm. No one was buying. No one was interested in buying. And builders were freaking out. Builders were like, 
this is going to be really bad. Is this another pen? Is this another 2008? Uh, what am I going to do with all these empty lots and properties that I started developing? And then what did we do? We threw a ton of cash into the market, ton of cash into the economy through stimulus checks and so forth. We saw this rebound really quick and buyer traffic started going up because there was a ton of cash in the market and there wasn't enough supply. And so all these people who were getting all this extra cash were going in and buying properties as a strong asset class to probably hedge against inflation. So that lasted. We had you know one, two, three years of that. And then end of 2023, as rates were starting to go up at really fast uh, inclines, we started to see the buyer traffic drop again. People got really scared of the market because it was like three quarter point rate hikes. What is going on? Half point rate hikes. What is going on? Uh, my mortgage to get this new home, that sounds impossible. So a lot of people got really uh, satiated, I think would be a good word, or kind of uh, pessimistic about the market. And then when rates started flattening off, we started seeing very little increases to no increases through this year, the appetite for buying went up. But look what happened in the last section of this year, the last basically quarter of 2023. The sentiment about New homes, we're not saying existing homes, new homes has gone down tremendously, although sales has maintained at about a historical price or about a historical level. So we sales have definitely dropped, but not in a bad way. We're kind of in that normal range now from low to high. And combined with that, the traffic or the interest is dropping. And I would guess unless here's the key data point, unless we see a rate drop, the moment we see Jerome Powell come in and say, hey, we're dropping one quarter point, just that signal alone, I would imagine buyer traffic will start to, to peak because low inventory, the combination of low inventory, the combination of low or future low rates, you start to get buyer traffic up with nothing to buy, what's going to happen to the prices of these homes? Even though affordability is already ridiculous, what's going to happen? Well, it's just simple supply and demand. You're going to see another spike in the housing market around prices. And what else is also is that going to impact? It's going to impact rents. Now, I don't like that story. I don't even believe in that story. If you're on the podcast last week, I showed money supply. You guys remember that? Where we showed money supply was this like exponential thing, a huge spike during COVID. And then we've flattened it. In fact, we not only flattened it, we've had the first major decline in money supply uh, that we've had ever. I mean, it's the largest, longest period of, of M2 decline that we've ever had. And if you look at where the trend line should be, I was predicting May 2025 to get us back in our old trend. So to like fix all this chaos in terms of uh, the market pricing around definitely real estate, price of goods, uh, getting affordability back to where it should be to get this, you know, basically back in our old curve. May of 2025 was the date that I was seeing it would require. And so we have some uh, time before I think Jerome Powell is going to start lowering rates and until we get to that like 2% inflation uh, number that we like to see, I don't think that they're going to be uh, decelerating or taking their pedal or taking their foot off the gas pedal when it comes to rates. So 
couple more data points, and then we're going to go into our trades uh, that we did last week, gold and the S&P 500. Uh, excited to show you that because we are just nailing some of these technical levels. But let's go into um, home prices are crashing. I think I did that one. No, we didn't. So this is uh, just another bad story for builders. And sorry, builders, I'm not here to, like, there's really nothing I can do influential, like from an influence wise to like manipulate this. So I'm not sharing this because I have a bias and like, well, I kind of do want the prices to come down. So that, that would be a lie. I do want the prices to come down. So I do have a little bit of a cognitive bias around this. However, me talking about it isn't going to change the facts. And the facts are home prices are crashing for builders. And this is the largest uh, price decline percentage year over year that we've ever seen since the 70s. And we actually went below our 70s uh, data point. And so what does this mean? What is this chart saying? Well, we went through such an insane price increase through the pandemic because of the lack of supply that home builders were making insane premiums on these uh, houses. And hopefully they were stacking and and storing st stashes of this cash because what's happening now is their margins are dipping into levels that I would say are dangerous, meaning that based on the current market, affordability, interest rates, it's going to be really hard for builders to make profit on these homes, even though there's not much supply out there. And this smells a lot like 2008, where we had this problem, this supply problem, and it was, it was the lowest supply that we had had in over a decade. We had no houses for sale. We had no inventory. Everyone was saying there's no way this could drop because there's just no homes on the market. So, you know, the market's going to just keep going based on supply and demand. And then what happened? We had some changes with rates. We stopped lowering rates. We brought rates up. And through 2006 to 2008, the market constricted. 2000, late seven to eight, the market started to crash. And that's when we started seeing the deflationary period. So in a timeline, in a sequence of time, where are we compared to you know, when we pull these levers, how long does it take? Well, we're starting we're starting to see the impact of all of the rate changes, of all of the measures we've taken to kind of stabilize inflation now. And that could last all of 2024, meaning we might keep rates right where they're at. We'll see deflationary things start to happen in the market. And if GDP starts to drop with it, we might be inclined, Jerome Powell might be inclined to do a rate drop. But when you look at home prices for builders, why are they going to go out and build? How are we going to get more GDP out? How are we going to get more output for the country when there's no profits? When we're at, what is this, negative 18% year over year? Like, who's going to be incentivized to go build a home from scratch when they're going to make 18% less than they were the year before? And so there's going to have to be all this adjusting to happen, and it will. There's going to be innovation. There's going to be weight. Like the builders that will win are going to be the ones that learn how to build and do it more efficiently at lower costs. And that is exactly what happened in 2008. Homes and home builders got creative and they got really good at building at like prices that we, we couldn't imagine in 2006. We thought was impossible. And so don't 
don't see this as like a there's there's always a silver lining in these stories and the silver lining is we are really brilliant at solving problems there's always a carrot and all of this data i hope you really see this all this data is really showing you a massive opportunity that's coming in the next year how many just try this on for a second how many of you wish that you'd gotten like just insanely heavy in the real estate market during 2008 it's like, yeah, of course. But when you compare like, hey, time-wise, we're like right there. Timing-wise, we're like really close to that 2008 period. When you're in it, it feels like I want to avoid it. And so there's going to be some major winners and in, in the players that decide to jump in really heavy and buying assets that have been devalued and buy it down. Don't wait. Don't try to time the market. That's the craziest in fact, I'll tell you a story about this in a second, but that's the craziest thing you can do. Don't try to buy or buy the low, buy it down. And then when it, not if, but when it rises, you'll start to get your profits through those kind of steps. Um, I will share, I, I, get to, I get to do this because I think it's a great story about trading that highlights how the human mind works versus reality in terms of if you really want to be good at trading, if you really want to be good at like timing markets and uh, long-term profitability, whether it's in real estate or in investing, I think this story really shares um, some insight, psychological insight that we kind of have working against us. So this was a long time ago. And uh, since then, my father has passed, but I'll tell his story because I remember kind of, I was really young, but I was always into numbers. In fact, I was taking a an economic course when this trade was happening for my dad. And it was really simple. My dad owned a house. It was the house that I grew up in, in California. And, you know, they had a typical mortgage on it. It was a small house. I would guess it was probably like 3,200, maybe three, maybe 2,500 to 3,000 square feet. It was enough that me, my sister, my parents had their own bedrooms, and that's all there was. And the thing about... uh the time in the market is we were starting to get into that 2005, 2006 period and prices were getting ridiculous, just like during the pandemic. And I was looking at rent prices and I was looking at like the overall equity that my dad had established in this house. And I was just young, probably some of it was being said from a naive place, but I was telling him, you know, dad, you ought to just sell and rent. And then let's buy a deal later down the road and we'll see how it goes. So, you know, whether that influenced him to do it or not, he did end up selling and uh, sold at a pretty good price. But let me let me kind of lay out what happened. So we sold the house, got a place to rent. And fascinatingly enough, he started watching some of the houses around him sell also. And I remember him coming to him and he was like, Matt, Gosh, you know, I I just think we screwed up. We should have waited. We should have sold six months later because the house right across the street, same square footage, little smaller yard. You know, he's giving me all these data points just sold for $20,000 more than the house that I just bought or the house that I just sold, our house that I lived in. And I was like, huh, you know, that's yeah, you're right. You're, you could have gotten $20,000 more, but you bought the house for like 100000 sold it for like almost four, that's an insane trade. Why are we arguing about $20,000? So like at a very young age, I'm starting to like get this concept of like, what are we complaining about? 
to me, that sounds like an amazing deal. Like you, you hit the jackpot, but yet psychologically, my dad was dealing with a $20,000 uh, in his, in his mind, a loss versus this hundreds of thousand dollar gain that happened by holding that house over that time. The story continues. <clears throat> we rented for two years, market price, uh, the housing market started to crash. We saw foreclosures happening everywhere. My dad found a foreclosure uh, in a neighboring city, ended up buying it for cash, cash that he got from the equity of selling his previous home. So he had no mortgage on this house, bought this house cash. And guess what he did about one to two months later? He comes to me, he says, Matt, you know, I know, you know, we're really, really blessed that we've got this house and it's paid for and, you know, that we were able to do this this way. And, you know, we should have waited. The house right across the street just sold for $15,000 less than the house that we just bought. And it has an extra bedroom. It has this extra, you know, uh, cement pad. And I'm just scratching my head going, you just can't do this. You can't hold yourself to the all-time low and the all-time high. And we just do this. It's like, we buy something, whether it's a stock, whether it's an asset that you know has potential growth, and we judge ourselves against the high and the low versus the trade. And the reality is, if you're beating 12% a year on your returns on anything, any asset class, you're beating some of the best hedge fund managers in the world. And so that's a not just a good trade, that's an amazing trade. And we have to keep that in mind. And as we go into 2024, don't get caught up. If you're someone who's going to be buying real estate, if you're going, to, if you're someone who's going to be investing uh, or getting back into certain market classes that have devalued, don't get so, so caught up on the five, ten percent declines that may continue, because the reality is you're interested in the big trade, not the one month, two month declines that may, and it will happen. You just have to position yourself. But if you have a long-term position and a long-term view, the value is in that. It's in patience. It's in having the patience and the time and the ability to hold something for a long period of time. So anyways, I think that's a good story to highlight this. Let's go ahead. I'm going to bring up our next uh, piece of data here. Oh, yes, 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 yes. New homes versus existing. Let me share this. This is, I think, our last chart. Really great data piece again. And then we're going to move into our... I'll show you really quickly my charts. I actually don't have much to show you guys on our charts uh, other than the pending ratio, but I'll give you access to the link so that you guys can have firsthand access to this data before even the news gets a hold of it and rights reports. But here's median sales prices versus new, or it's the median sales price, new versus existing homes. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm doing a victory lap. And I'm not Houdini. I'm not uh, you know, a profit, a market profit. Although that's a pretty clever name, market profit. I'm gonna have to chew on that. Um, but this stuff isn't hard to predict. And I want to just share with you something that happened on this chart that we reported on almost uh, beginning of year where I was really concerned about this gap. It was the gap between existing and new home sales. 
existing being on the bottom, new being on the top. And you can see that the gap, we had this back in, I think it was end of 2022. You can see kind of right here at the end, this lull that came down and this spike that came up. And there was this like big wide gap between new and existing homes. And if you recall, I said something like, when you have something that channels, I mean, look how tight these two run together. When you have something that channels like this, they always come back together, period. And so this is an arbitrage trade or an arbitrage situation, meaning one's going to have to come down or the other's going to have to come up or a combination of both. And what happened? Well, both. We saw rents go up. We saw home prices come down. And that's where we're at today where they're basically tracking together again. And I would imagine, you know, I can't say like which direction this trend is going to go. Uh, that's going to be a little harder to predict, but you can kind of see over the last year and a half that new and existing median sale prices are starting to drop. And we have corrected this gap that happened in the market uh, about 18 months ago. So this is just a victory lap side, just analysis. So you guys kind of understand how the markets work. We, as a trader, we like to look for gaps because gaps are opportunities. When we see spikes or radical shifts, like a lot of the charts that I've already showed you, and you guys could go through this again once we publish this uh, tomorrow. But when you look at those gaps, gaps create opportunity because they, they like to correct. They like to go back. And one of, you know, with all these network effects, like lumber affects the price of a house, the cost of fuel, you know, affects the price of homes because it's the energy to like make all the stuff and the cement and, you know, get things, uh, the power to like generate all the materials and the goods and the services. Everything's tied. There's all these networks that kind of play into the price of a single thing you pay for. And when one goes way out, it affects everything. And so we like to look for these trends because it gives you insight on a play that you can have in the market. This is showing more stability. Now, I'm not saying that this trend might be something that we want to look at. However, rent versus, or excuse me, new versus existing home prices, that gap went away. And I remember we, we were even Utah. It was like, it was this bizarre thing in Utah where we were one of the few states where it was cheaper to buy a new home per square foot than it was existing. It was like this bizarre phenomenon. But nationally, we kind of saw some of the opposite going on as well. All right, so let's move on. Oh, I'm going to show you guys this. This is my data source where I pull in a lot of our own data here. And then I'm going to pull in the trades on the S&P 500 and... Here we are. Okay, so here, here's my uh, market pulse data. I get all the real estate data and compile these charts every month. We got the data in. It's actually pretty stable. There's not a lot of new news other than the trends are all continuing. So like median listing price continuing to drop down. Average listing price continuing to drop a little. Price increase counts went up a little bit, but pretty low. Price reductions, we saw a little drop in price reductions. Median listing price per square foot is kind of sideways. But here's what I would, this is the chart that I'm interested in the most, and then we'll move on. 
is what I call the pending ratio. So pending ratio is really this active, like on the market versus how many are closing. And even though we have very little supply in the market, it's still it's still looking like we're going to get back into pre-pandemic levels on the pending ratio. And of course you would. Like this weird spike that we had, you know, this kind of head half shoulder pattern that happened, uh, we're going to get back into this old pending ratio because that's just, we like to be in trends and the feds use a lot of this data to go, hey, are we back in some of these trends? And they obviously have their key indicators they look at to get us there. But we are definitely heading back into that. Where this gets ugly is if this starts to go below previous trends. And that's where you start to see a supply issue. And when we have an increase in supply and affordability, like impossible, like it is already, that's when you're going to see massive drops in prices. And frankly, people are holding onto their homes because of their low rates, thinking that, you know, I can get the rent. Why would I sell it? But when you start to see rent prices drop past a certain level, People will stop uh, holding on to their homes and will start selling when they're really not making any money renting the house either. And so there is kind of this consideration around rates that a lot of economists aren't making. And that is, yes, I get rates were low. And so people, you know, they, they have cheap money basically into these homes. But when it doesn't make sense to have the cheap money because how much they're their cost of service versus the rent declines that are happening, people are going to start sending them back to the bank. And most of those purchases are going to be people who bought new homes through the pandemic. So from 2020 to current, that's those are the people I would be the most concerned about is if you got a low rate, but the home isn't for you, you have to move you know, out of the state or out of the country. It's not going to make sense for you to rent it and you're going to have to put it on the market and I would imagine we're going to see some light inventory increases from that. Uh, but with the home builder charts that we saw, I don't I don't see builders putting a lot of fuel in the tank in terms of building new construction right now. So there's going to be a, a, a massive distressed uh, or market distressed opportunity, I think, in the uh, new or in the uh, actual home market, not just the commercial uh, side of the real estate market. All right, so there's that. I don't want to spend too much time on that. We're going to get into our trades now. This is my favorite part of our training. And I, I'm going to bring up the S&P 500 because I like to do kind of a market analysis so that you can look into next week and go, what is the market generally going to be doing? And how how are we going to uh, do in uh, all the other assets that I might be trading because the S&P 500 is really a great reflection of all things, right? So let's bring that up really quick. We had some interesting data come up on this. Bring up my chart. All right, so here's S&P 500, guys. So last week, we drew up these charts to kind of show you where we were at in the market. And this is... You know, we've been following the S&P 500 since I started this podcast. And I've been giving you insight on like, where do prices go? Where are they likely to go? And obviously, every day that happens, uh, you have to kind of re reevaluate because, you know, there's sentiment changes. There's announcements that come out that I can't predict what it's going to be today. And you have to kind of readjust as you go. But last Friday, 
here's what we predicted. We predicted going into Monday and maybe Tuesday, this is where our prices would be. You guys can see that here. Now, obviously, the likelihood is we would stay in the channel. But I said if for some reason later in the week we had a breakout, it would likely come into this range. And if we had a breakout above the support, it would go into this range. Well, that didn't happen here. So we didn't go above the 4,600 range. And we didn't drop below this 4,553 range either. So we're going to delete that. And we're kind of still in this trend. And I love these scenarios because when you're in a trend and you're pushing up against support, that's or excuse me, uh, resistance that is being tested and has been tested more than once and it's holding, we're going to have a pressure breakout at some point. Something is going to either cause this to push up or it's going to cause it to break down. And so this is where a trade setup will happen very likely into next week. It could go a whole week if we just have very little movement uh, in the stock market next week. Very unlikely, though. So let me kind of draw this out for you, and I'll show you what I mean. So I'm going to get rid of this, and let's just adjust our channel just a hair. So you can see, and we didn't have to do much on this, but you can see S&P 500 over the last two and a half weeks went from 4,473 and then climbed all the way up to 4,600 and hit the 4,600 top and has been bouncing off of it. And when I talk about pressure in the market and like how to trade this, what's happening is we're going to create mounting pressure because we've got a trend that's pushing us up and it's like constantly pushing us up towards the upside, which means there is a more bear or bullish sentiment in the S&P 500 right now. However, we have this very strong resistance at 4,600, meaning there's a lot of price action, probably options and futures where people are placing their bets that when it hits 4,600 to sell it off. Now, I'm not recommending you do that. I look for the trades and the breaks. And here is where the range is going to be Monday, Tuesday, very similar to what we uh, did on Friday. And we got that, we kind of nailed that was going to be in this channel left of that. And the longer it goes, in fact, let's draw this channel out further so you can kind of get all the way into Friday. You have to make some adjustments on this. There we go. But as we get into, this is going to be Monday. This will be Tuesday. See how it gets tighter. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So there is a possibility that it will stay in this. And just mind you, there might be some wicks that break in and out. I like to look at the close of the day before I make the trade. So I like to see it actually close out for the day rather than some news announcement that caused it to come down and then it overcorrected and went back up. Uh, you got to be careful of that. But here are what I would see is going to happen into next week. And I would say more towards the downside. I would say you've got a higher likelihood of a breakout towards the downside than the upside. I'd have to look at the ledgers, the option ledgers, to see how much is stacking up against this. But one of the key indicators right now is the VIX, and the VIX is at an all-time low. 
which means that there's when there's low volatility, there's very little bearish pressure. And so that does make an argument that we could break the 4,600 level. Here's what to do. And again, not, not advice. You guys get to do your own homework, but if you're going to paper trade this, just try it so that you get a sense of like how to place these trades. These would be limit trades, a buy once you break the 4,600. And so kind of keep an eye on this Monday, Tuesday, but like you'd probably put a breakout at like 4,620 towards the upside. And then you've got momentum. I mean, endless momentum. And so these are one of those trades where you're going to want to run like a trailing stop on this. And you're going to start locking in profits, but let it run. When you're in unknown territory towards an upside, uh, really the only resistance you have is rounded numbers. And what I mean by that is like, it's going to be 4,700, 4,800, 4,900, 5,000. Those are going to be like your resistance points because there's no there's no historical price movement in the past that people will compare to and be able to draw these lines. So just be aware, 4,700 is kind of our new, I'm going to draw that in. It's kind of our new resistance. And if you get a break to the downside, you could put in a pending trade at like 45, 56, but make sure you're locking in your take profits because you are fighting against the long-term trend and a take profit in somewhere like 44, 93, and then put your stop losses obviously above the support here. And if you're going long, put your stop loss below the 4,600 level. So just, it's really simple. Take profits, you always put in the margin. Stop losses, you always put below the support or resistance levels. And then as you guys watch this day-to-day, uh, there should be some really great trade setups uh, as you break out. Now, can you scalp Monday and Tuesday? Yes. Uh, watch for the announcements that are coming out. But Monday or Tuesday, you do have a high potential of sideways movement and it bouncing off this 4,600 level unless you get just some insane bullish news, uh, which I'm personally not anticipating, but it could happen. All right, so there's... S&P 500, I'm going to save this so we've got it for next week. Let's move over to our gold analysis. Oh my gosh, gold, guys. What a trip. We hit all-time record highs in gold in the last week. And this trend, we always talk about breakouts, right? We said, okay, well, it's likely it's going to continue in this trend. Monday came and it was like, what? what is going on? Like, how did this happen? We got this like just crazy news, a lot of buying into gold. And we saw this massive spike. In fact, I did some reports on gold. We saw this massive spike in gold hitting all-time record highs and then a drop like in the same day. And so when things like that happen, you've got your support and resistance levels, right? You would have bought right in here. Let me just get my line. You would have bought when it broke the 2076 level, maybe at like 2081. Run it up, keep your, obviously your stop loss, endless possibilities because we haven't seen prices, guys, in these levels for a long time. We're at like all-time record highs and then it dropped out. And so we've got to remap this because Monday, and it doesn't happen often, but Monday blew all of our technicals that we did on Friday out. Now, typically it's pretty predictable, right? You can go days, sometimes weeks with these uh, setups. But if you get a fundamental change, meaning market news, uh, it could be an announcement that happens in the market or some sentiment that changes uh, public perception, 
you, you can't, that's not technical analysis. You, you just, you have to make adjustments. And so we are in a new trend because of uh, a fundamental change that happened on Monday, which blew all of our work that we did on Friday out of the water. Uh, doesn't mean that we didn't set up for a trade. Our technical levels were great, but this trend that we drew in and the price prediction, yeah, did we have movement in that price? Absolutely. But it was in that price and went way beyond. So let's get rid of these. And that was kind of my scenario as I said, okay, Monday, Tuesday, we should be in this price range. We definitely were on Monday, but we had the breakout on Monday into Tuesday. And so that my next prediction of like where it would live for the rest of the week, it got completely blown out. Uh, but it did go sideways as I predicted just at a lower point um, that week. So let's go through this for this week. We're going to have to draw some new trends in and I'm not going to take this high. This is an obnoxious high on this candle. I'm actually going to kind of mark this out. We're going to take this trend here like this. I'm going to actually take the body of the candle rather than the wick. These are anomaly wicks, especially when they shadow or uh, the wick itself comes up and out kind of to an extreme. This is a radical from a candlestick pattern. This is a radical retracement pattern. Just FYI, when you see a candle, uh, an ha a, ha a hammer, basically, or a candle with a large wick like this at the top of a incline of the mountain. This is typically a reversal pattern. So looking at this, I, I would say we're probably going to be a little bearish for a while unless we get some fundamental news again on Monday that just puts us back into the up. So what I would predict going into next week is going to be price movement, obviously here. It's going to want to stay in this channel. There's going to be soft resistance um, at the 2000 level. The 2000 price level, for whatever reason, from a support stance has not held very well. So I would not hold on to the 2000 level being our bouncing point based on historical price movement. It just, it blows through it. You can see it in the past. It just doesn't even care about 2000. However, 1970 is a strong support from the past. And so I would hold on to this. I think between 1970 and 1950, you might see some support, uh, but that's where I would predict this. So what do you do with this? Well, we're kind of in the middle of two major support and resistance levels, the 1970 and the 2050. So we have movement to go down and we're already in the channel. So there is potentially a trade already in existence right now. This short trend and trade happened when we came back down through the 2050 level. You could have put in a sell trade at about 2038, rode it into the 1984 uh, range. And I think that would have been... a. a a considerable thing to do. I think that would have been uh, a decent trade. Could you already, can you put in another trade now? Yeah, I think you could. I think you could go uh, bearish. Just make sure you're taking your take profits above the seven or this 1970 level and then put your stops. You know, if it crosses this light support, put it above 2000. If you're going to put it in right now, put it above 2049 and then watch for breakouts. If there breaks this trend towards the upside, uh, you could have a great buy trade, but again, just watch your technical. So if you're watching this and you're like, gosh, I want to trade gold or gosh, I want to trade uh, the S&P 500, just write the support and resistance levels down and mark these on your charts. And then you're going to trade the support and resistance based on your take profits, stay inside, your stop losses always go outside. 
All right. Well, that wraps things up. And my timing on this was perfect. So next week, we're going to be mixing things up. Um, I brought in a producer. You can kind of tell like my scenery has changed and we're, we're radically changing kind of my landscape, uh, how how I'm doing the podcast. And I'm also going to be messing with the template to make this more less technical, less data driven and more entertaining. So I'm going to dial back my data by like 20%. I'm going to dial up my entertainment by like 20% uh, to make this more engaging. Because frankly, if you're not in the numbers and you're not incentivized to be in the numbers, this can get a little heavy. And so next week, we're going to make this a lot more fun. I'm going to do some segments uh, to kind of get some involvement from the audience. Uh, and yeah, I think, why not? Why not make finance fun? Uh, and maybe that's what we'll call it. We'll call it the the fun finance section. But anyways, thanks so much for being on here, guys. I appreciate your support. And we will see you same time, same place uh, next week. I'm Matthew Pohl, Market Pulse, and you guys have a great weekend. Thank you. 